0: Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, some thoughts about current criticisms of the Supreme Court of the United States. Professor Robert Stein, provides his analysis to the Supreme Court of the United States historical cases and those justices who he views as being the most notable over the years. This lecture is a part of a celebration of Professor Robert Stein and his 50th teaching anniversary with Minnesota Law, and it was recorded on October 25th, 2022. A video replay of the entire event is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law.
1: Today, I would like to talk about some thoughts about current criticisms of the Supreme Court of the United States. And this lecture, too, relates to the course I now teach on the U.S. Supreme Court and great cases that have shaped the nation. The Supreme Court has come under a great amount of criticism in recent years, particularly after decisions in the last term that overruled long-standing precedents such as Roe versus Wade. In addition, uh, in that term, uh, the court allowed more statutory re- restrictions on abortion. The court also shifted the line separating church and state and began to rein in the discretion of government agencies, among several other truly remarkable decisions. And the pace of change by the court may continue in the current term that began the first Monday of this month, as the court has agreed to hear cases involving, one, a challenge to affirmative action programs at Harvard and North Carolina, two, a voting rights case, involving an allegation that Alabama discriminated against African-Americans by gerrymandering election districts. And three, the issue of whether laws forbidding discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation must give way to business owners claiming a right of free expression. And those are only three of many huge cases the court has taken up this year. Criticisms and proposals to quote unquote reform the Supreme Court have been made by scholars, journalists, members of other branches of government and these criticisms and proposals have received wide commentary. Some criticism has even come from within the court itself. In a remarkable exchange, one I don't quite recall in recent years, after Chief Justice John Roberts delivered a speech defending the court and saying unpopular decisions should not call the court's legitimacy into question, Justice Elena Kagan countered in remarks at a law school this past summer, quote, disregarding stare decisis, the doctrine of abiding by past decisions in the absence of compelling evidence that change is required undermines public confidence, unquote. In the time I have today, I'd like to discuss some of the so-called reform proposals and express my views on those proposals. A presidential commission on the Supreme Court of the United States has been appointed and issued its final report in December of last year, and I will note some of the conclusions of that commission. Following those remarks to the extent time is available, I would like to talk about some of the justices I have admired the most among the 116 justices that have been appointed to the Supreme Court in the 232 years since the court was established in 1790. I'm currently working on a book to describe 25 of the most notable justices of the Supreme Court, and I think I see some of my research assistants in here who are helping me as uh, we work on that uh, book. One of the proposals that has been made to reform the court is to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Critics of the current Supreme Court have urged the appointment of additional justices so that the views of the new justices, together with those of the current members of the court, would create a new majority on the court. Now, the size of the Supreme Court is not mandated in Article Three of the Constitution. It is decided by law by Congress. The size was set by Congress at six judges, justices in the first Judiciary Act of 1789, and the Congress planned to increase the size of the court as the population of the United States increased. The size of the court was increased to seven justices in 1807, reflecting the increased population. The size of the court increased to nine justices in 1837, and increased again to 10 justices in 1863. President Lincoln was the only president to appoint a 10th justice on the Supreme Court. In 1866, the Republican Congress wanted to deny President Andrew Johnson, a Democrat who succeeded to the presidency upon the assassination of President Lincoln deny him the ability to appoint any Supreme Court justices after unsuccessfully trying to impeach him. Congress passed the Judicial Circuits Act in 1866 that provided that the next three justices to retire or die would not be replaced until the court reached the size of seven by attrition. One justice was removed in 1866, so the court became nine justices A second justice was removed in 1867 and the court became eight justices and by 1869 President Andrew Johnson was no longer president and there was no longer concern about him having any appointments to the court and so Congress passed the Circuit Judges Act of 1869 that set the size of the Supreme Court at nine where it has remained ever since for 153 years. Now as many of you know President Franklin Roosevelt attempted to increase the size of the court in 1937. President Roosevelt was frustrated by a five justice conservative majority on the court holding unconstitutional several important acts that were part of Roosevelt's New Deal package of legislation. And so he proposed this bill that would add one new justice to the court for every justice who had reached age 70 and had not retired until the court reached the size of 15 justices. The plan was commonly described as Roosevelt's court packing plan. Uh, Interesting, uh, the dean mentioned I hold the Everett Fraser professor of law. Everett Fraser was a great Democrat and uh, he went out lecturing all over the country back at that time in favor of President Roosevelt's plan to increase the size of the Supreme Court. But the plan ran into a lot of uh, opposition in Congress, and it probably would have ultimately failed. It, it, It didn't actually die, but it was near death. But suddenly, the larger court was no longer necessary for passage of Roosevelt's New Deal legislation. In the 1937 case of West Coast Hotel versus Parish, Justice Owen Roberts, who frequently was part of the five-justice-conservative majority, changed his mind, switched his vote to uphold the constitutionality of state minimum-wage legislation, and so the blockade of five conservative justices was broken. That vote change has been called, many of you are familiar with this, the switch in time that saved nine. <laughs> saved the court at nine. Also in 1937, President Roosevelt had an additional appointment to the court to fill the seat of one of the conservatives, Justice William Vandeventer, who retired, and Roosevelt appointed Alabama Senator Hugo Black to the court, and uh, Black had been a supporter of the court-packing plan, but uh, he he commended himself to President Roosevelt, and so he was uh, the first appointment Roosevelt made to the Supreme Court. And so the court has remained at nine justices, where it continues today. I do not support an increase in the size of the court above nine justices, as many have proposed, in order to achieve a new majority. In politics, I believe that what goes around, comes around, and if one party does this to protect its constitutional priorities, There's nothing to prevent the other party from increasing the size of the court further when it comes into power. And so the nine may become 12, and the 12 may become 15, and so on. And for those reasons, I'm very doubtful about the benefit of uh, the increase in the size of the court. In my opinion, the case has not been made that a larger court would produce better decisions. In fact, the court is taking fewer cases now than it has for Decades. When I started teaching, they were taking uh, some 200 cases or more a year. In recent years, they're taking 50 to 55 cases a year. So it's a much smaller workload of the court now than previously. So I do not uh, support an increase in the size of the court. The Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court was divided in their views on this proposal, and so the commission took no position on the proposal to increase the size of the court. A second reform proposal has been to limit the terms of the justices from a lifetime appointment to a non-renewable term of significant length that's often been suggested, such as 18 years. In fact, and these are interesting figures to me, the average length of the terms of justice has become longer in recent years. From 1789 to 1970, about 50 years ago, 1789 to 1970, justices served an average of 14.9 years on the court. Justices who have stepped down after 1970, the last 52 years, have served an average of 25.6 years on the court. That's an increase of more than 10 years in recent years in service on the court. And the retirement age has increased from an average of age 68 before 1970 to age 79 for justices retiring after 1970. Between 1789 and 1970, there was a vacancy on the court once every 1.91 years. In the 50 years after 1971, there has been a vacancy on the court once every 3.75 years. So you see the terms are getting longer and the openings uh, spaced out much further. The Constitution sets the length of the term of federal judges, including Supreme Court justice, as a lifetime appointment. A change in the term of Supreme Court justices would require a constitutional amendment, and that's the principal reason I am not supportive of a change limiting the term of justices to one long, non-renewable term, such as 18 years. A long, non-reviewable term renewable term might be reasonable, but I'm concerned about the constitutional amendment process. Once the Constitution is open for amendment, some very undesirable results could occur. That could result in the loss of critically important civil rights. There are two processes for amending the Constitution, and one of them would be calling for a constitutional convention. If that process was followed, Any of our precious existing constitutional rights might be threatened by the actions at the convention. Everything is on the table if that occurs. I believe it is important to protect the Constitution from changes that result from the passions of the moment. Also, I would note that some of the greatest opinions by great justices occurred after they had been on the court for more than 18 years. Let's take Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, She became the notorious RBG who led the liberal wing of the court primarily after she surpassed her 18th year on the court in 2011. There was support for term limits for justices on the presidential commission on the Supreme Court, but it was far from unanimous. The commission report listed the arguments for and against term limits. Now, another proposal for change in constitutional law that has been advanced is a constitutional amendment uh, that would allow a Supreme Court judgment declaring a federal law to be unconstitutional to be overturned by a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress. There's some precedent for that idea in Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms in which a quote notwithstanding clause allows a parliamentary override of a Canadian Supreme Court decision holding a Canadian statute incompatible with a charter-protected right. The Canadian Parliament has yet to exercise that prerogative. Now that Canadian provision was brought to my attention a few years ago when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg sent me a speech she delivered to a US-Canada judicial conference in which he discussed that provision. She was a good source of material for my seminars. I would uh, get uh, copies of her speeches pretty regularly. Justice Ginsburg did not support the concept, and neither do I. Another proposal that has been advanced for change in the operation of the Supreme Court would be the adoption of a judicial code of ethics for the justices. There is an advisory code of conduct covering all other federal judges but that code by its own terms is not applicable to the justices. I think it would be desirable for the court to adopt a code of ethics or a code of conduct applicable to Supreme Court justices. That would address concerns that have arisen when justices participate in cases when there is concern about an alleged conflict of interest. In my view, it would be preferable for the court to adopt its own code of conduct rather than have one applied to it that is enacted by Congress, Uh, if a congressionally enacted uh, code would raise separation of powers issues. The Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court commented favorably about adoption of a code of ethics or a code of conduct for the Supreme Court, but did not make a formal recommendation on the question. There is a change that I believe would reduce some of the current criticisms of the Supreme Court and that is a change in the Senate rule for votes to confirm Supreme Court nominations. Before 2013, the Senate rules required a, a, a supermajority for confirmation of judicial appointments. To end debate or a filibuster about a nomination, the Senate rules provided for a cloture vote to end debate. The percentage of votes required to end debate has changed over time, but in 2013 and now, the cloture motion to end debate requires 60 votes to be approved. That essentially established a requirement of a supermajority to confirm judicial appointments. In 2013, when the Democrats had a majority but not a supermajority of the Senate, Democratic senators were worried that the cloture rule would prevent some of the judicial appointments by President Obama uh, to receive a confirmation vote because they lacked the necessary 60 votes of senators to invoke cloture. As a consequence, the then Senate leader, Senator Harry Reid of Nevada, was successful in leading the Senate to change its rules to eliminate the cloture rule for nomination of federal judges other than Supreme Court nominations, and those nominations of judges other than Supreme Court justices could be approved by a vote of a simple majority of the Senate or 51 votes. But after 2013, the Senate rules still applied the cloture rule to votes to confirm appointments to the United States Supreme Court. In 2017, Senate Republicans uh, had a majority of the Senate, and they were successful in removing the cloture exception for Supreme Court nominations. After that change, all judicial nominations, including nominations of Supreme Court justices, can be confirmed by a vote of a simple majority of the Senate, 51 votes. The appointments of President Donald Trump's three Supreme Court appointments and President Joe Biden's single, so far, Supreme Court appointment, were confirmed largely along party lines. Justice Neil Gorsuch by a vote of 54 to 45, Justice Brett Kavanaugh by a 50 to 48 vote, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett by a 52 to 48 vote, and Justice Katanji Brown Jackson by a 53 to 47 vote. I would like to see the cloture rule reapplied to all judicial appointments, but particularly to Supreme Court nominations That would require that most Supreme Court nominations receive some amount of bipartisan support. I believe that would reduce some of the polarization that currently exists regarding Supreme Court appointments. I would be in favor of a change in the Senate cloture rules to require a supermajority of 60 senators to confirm nomination of a justice to the Supreme Court. The Presidential Commission considered uh, on the Supreme Court considered other proposals for change in the structure and operation of the Supreme Court, but I believe the proposals I have discussed are some of the more significant ones. I would like to move to the remaining part of this lecture and talk about some of the notable justices that I particularly admire in the long history of the Supreme Court. These are justices who have made extraordinary contributions to the development of constitutional law that established our nation, and protects the freedoms that we cherish. I wish it was time to talk about many more of my heroes on the court, uh, but I hope I've reserved enough time to talk about four of the great justices who have served on the court. I begin with the great Chief Justice, and I think many of you know who I'm talking about, Chief Justice John Marshall. I regard Chief Justice John Marshall as the greatest Chief Justice in the history of the Supreme Court. He was not the first Chief Justice. Many people can't remember who was Chief Justice before him. Um, Chief Justice Marshall was the fourth, but he was the Chief Justice whose leadership and decisions helped to create and strengthen a new nation out of the quarreling 13 states that came together after the Declaration of Independence. Marshall had never been a judge before President John Adams appointed him to the court. He was a politician, serving as a Federalist Congressman in the House of Representatives until he was appointed to be Secretary of State in the John Adams administration. He had no judicial experience before he became Chief Justice. What Chief Justice Marshall had was a vision, and I've studied these justices, I think so often visions are important to success in life, where people want to go with the responsibility they have. Marshall had a vision of a new nation, and he had incredible ability to persuade other justices to support this vision. Most of his legendary opinions were unanimous. Through many nation-building cases, such as Gibbons v. Ogden, in which he interpreted the Constitution to give the Congress of the new nation extraordinarily broad power over inner state commerce. Indeed, broader than anything since. There's no, there's, there's no decision that's g- given Congress broader power than Gibbons versus Ogden uh, by uh, Chief Justice John Marshall. But also his decision in Marbury versus Madison where he completed the separation of powers of the three branches of government by holding the Supreme Court had the power to hold acts of the Congress and by extension, acts of the president, uh, unconstitutional. Marshall helped to build the new nation in which all the branches of government have co-equal powers. In the 34 years he served on the court, he was principally responsible for bringing about the reality of a new nation. My opinion, he is the great Chief Justice. The Chief Justice I regard as the second greatest Chief Justice in the history of the Supreme Court is Chief Justice Earl Warren. Like Marshall, Warren had never been a judge before becoming Chief Justice. He too was a politician. But what a politician? He was a Republican who had broad bipartisan support because of his centrist to liberal views. Uh, Warren ran for governor of California and won in 1942. He ran again to be governor of California in 1946. He won the Republican primary election to be the Republican nominee for governor. He entered the primary election of the Democratic Party and he won the Democratic primary as well, so he was a Democratic candidate. And there was an independence party that had uh, an uh, election and he won that too. So <laughs> he, he was the primary, he was the representative of every party in 1946, so he won the election. Uh, and uh, and it, it shows his skills like Marshall in, in people skills, in interacting with people of various views. In 1948, Warren was on the national ticket as a a candidate for vice president on the ticket with Senator Robert Taft, and that ticket was barely defeated by the President Truman ticket. You may remember an early edition of some of the older ones of the Chicago uh, Tribune said that uh, the Taft-Warren ticket had been elected. It was that close an election. So Warren was a politician with great people skills like Marshall, and he also brought a vision like Marshall, to his leadership of the court as Chief Justice. And the cases that came up, which I'm teaching now in my course, and it's just mind-boggling that every year, 1961, 1962, 1963, there was a blockbuster case every year, and that was Warren finding those cases and bringing them uh, to the court. Warren's vision was of a new and different nation in America, in which there was less racial discrimination, a nation in which the criminal justice system was more just, and a nation in which every person was entitled to an equal vote, in the first weeks that after he came on the court, uh, and he 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 even before he was confirmed, it was uh, uh, an appointment uh, in between uh, uh, terms, uh, he led the court to a unanimous decision in Brown versus the Board of Education overruling the 50 year history of uh, Plessy versus Ferguson that supported legal education through the doctrine of separate but equal. The court had tentatively voted the year before Warren joined the court to decide Brown by upholding the rule of Plessy versus Ferguson. That is, to hold that the black and white schools were separate but not equal and find that as a mechanism for giving the plaintiff's relief. The court was uncomfortable with that result, so they put the case over for argument again in the next year. The only change in the next year was that Chief Justice Warren had replaced Chief Justice Vinson, who died a month before the next term was to begin. Warren came on the court one month, not even a month, September 12th, and the court met the first Monday in in uh, October, uh, and he as a result of his presence on the court, the four to five vote of the previous year became five to four to overturn Plessy. It would not have happened if if Warren had not gone on the court. Warren knew how important it was that this nation changing case be unanimous, so he went chamber to chamber persuading all of his colleagues to join the majority opinion. This all in the first year of the Chief Justiceship of Earl Warren, who had never previously been a judge and he came onto a court with such iconic, legendary justices as Hugo Black, Stanley Reed, Felix Frankfurter, uh, Douglas Jackson. Uh, it was it's an amazing accomplishment by Earl Warren. In the 14 years he was Chief Justice, Warren led the court in deciding Baker versus Carr. that required that every person should have his or her vote count equally. And Gideon versus Wainwright that established the right to counsel in criminal cases, and instantly, our Walter Mondale led the state attorneys general to file an important brief in that case. Uh, uh, Map versus Ohio that greatly expanded the protections of the Fourth Amendment privilege against unreasonable searches and seizures. And I guess most of you can recite from memory the Miranda warnings that he wrote in his opinion in that famous case that expanded the right to be protected against self-incrimination. The Warren court from 1954 to 1968 ranks as a high point in the development of constitutional law to achieve greater social justice in America. Moving to more contemporary justices, I would like to talk about two justices for whom I have such great admiration and fondness. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to be appointed to the Supreme Court, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the the second woman to be appointed to the court. Both were giants on the court, and I was blessed to have the friendship of uh, both of them for many decades. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, appointed by President Ronald Reagan in 1981. It's interesting that she, like Marshall and Warren, had been a politician, the majority leader of the Senate in Arizona. And in fact, not only that, she was the first woman to be president of the the Senate in any state in the United States. Uh, So she'd been a successful politician before going on the court, and she is the last justice appointed to the court to have legislative experience. I believe the current court would benefit from the appointment of a justice that has had legislative experience. The subtitle of a biography of Justice O'Connor by Joan Biskopec describes her time on the Supreme Court with these words, quote, how the first woman on the Supreme Court became its most influential justice, unquote. She was a swing justice who could attract votes to an opinion from both conservatives and liberals. This is reflected in her opinions in Grutter versus Bollinger, which was a affirmative action case, and in Planned Parenthood versus Casey involving the right to an abortion. Some criticized Justice O'Connor for lacking a controlling judicial philosophy, but what she had was a great practical sense of justice, uh, a, a tact of knowing what would be widely viewed by the public as a just decision. In recognition of her appointment as the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, the women graduates and students of this law school had a reception in her honor on the first Monday in October, 1981, when she first sat on the Supreme Court. Is anyone in the room who was at that reception? Yep, what a uh, mountaintop experience, wasn't it? Uh, Justice O'Connor sent us a greeting to be read at that reception on her first day on the court. She accepted my invitation to visit Minnesota when she could and she came in 1987 on which visit the University of Minnesota awarded Justice O'Connor an Honorary Doctor of Laws degree. Justice O'Connor made additional visits to the law school in subsequent years and in introducing her to an audience on a later visit, I described her first visit in 1987 in these words. Most of us in the room were old enough to remember this, but. Quote, if you were not old enough in 1981 to be aware of her appointment, it may be hard for you to fully appreciate how electric and powerful that moment was in American history. As I walked with Justice O'Connor in those days of 1987 when she was here, I was astounded at the powerful impact her appointment to the court had on people, but particularly on women. Wherever we went, crowds of women would press forward, Many, it's not an exaggeration with tears running down their face, many just wanting to touch her. She represented such a momentous step forward in opportunities for women in this country. She represented the American dream for women, not just in law, but in all fields of endeavor. So I'm very proud of Justice O'Connor's appointment to the court and, and certainly her work on the court. A fourth justice and final one I would like to talk about briefly today is Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a friend for over 40 years before her sad death in in 2020. We met when she was a professor at Columbia Law School and I was a professor here. Later, I would visit her each year when she was on the D.C. Court of Appeals and still later a justice on the Supreme Court. I was there interviewing clerks who were interested in law teaching and would always arrange a visit with uh, Ruth Ginsburg. She was our graduation speaker here during the time she was on the Court of Appeals, and she was the first justice to participate in a conversation with me as part of the Stein series that was referenced earlier. Uh, we also served together on the consul of the American Law Institute for many years in the ABA Center for Human Rights. So... We had many connections, very fond of Justice Ginsburg. We have several Swedish students in the room today who are exchange law students. And I'd like to note that the first position Justice Ginsburg had after her law school graduation and a federal clerkship was as associate director of a project on international procedure where she learned to read and speak Swedish and she co-authored a book on civil procedure also in Swedish. In 1969, Lund University in Sweden conferred an honorary degree of laws on then Professor Ginsburg, and in 2019, near the end of her life, within a year of her death, she traveled to Sweden to be honored by Lund University as a jubilee doctor on the 50th anniversary of her honorary degree. In 1973, Ruth Bader Ginsburg became general counsel of the American Civil Liberties Union Project on Women's Rights, which she had founded, and she argued many groundbreaking cases that expanded constitutional rights for women. Later, as a judge, she also authored the majority opinion in landmark cases recognizing the constitutional rights of women, such as U.S. versus Virginia, striking down the male-only admissions policy of the Virginia Military Institute, VMI, Uh, I believe that no justice is more responsible for the advancement of women's rights in the last 25 years than Justice Ginsburg. Even her dissenting opinions, as in Ledbetter versus Goodyear, have become legendary. In introducing her on one occasion, I said no no justice had done more to advance constitutional rights of women than she had, and she stood up and corrected me to say she had worked to advance the constitutional rights of all persons, including women. (laughs) In the last 10 years of her life, Justice Ginsburg became known as the Notorious RBG. She thought that was very funny and was so pleased by that description. Uh, I saw her almost every year in the last several years. And each time i visited visit her office, uh, she would take me over to a table in which she had all kinds of memorabilia displayed to show me the many t-shirts and, and other golf balls and things, that say notorious RBG. Justice Ginsburg's death in September 2020 was such an overwhelmingly sad day for all of us who treasured her leadership on the court in extending the constitutional and protections for all of us. So I thank you for the opportunity to share with you some of my thoughts on current criticisms of the Supreme Court and to acknowledge some of the most notable Supreme Court justices for whom I have such enormous admiration. Currently in my 51st year on the law school faculty, I'm so pleased to teach about and write about our great Supreme Court and the marvelous justices who have developed our constitutional law over the past 232 years. And let me close with a teaser. I'm pleased to announce that one of the current justices of the Supreme Court has agreed to come to Minnesota in the next academic year or a conversation with me as part of the Stein Lecture Series. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can we take a couple of questions? Thank you so much, that's very kind of you. Uh, I don't want to cut into our refreshment time too far, but uh, let's take a couple of questions if anyone has any. Yes, Gary. I think he said it was a damn fool mistake. Full yeah. There's a funny story behind that. Eisenhower wanted to get. He, they were worried about the '56 election, so and they were thought they might need some support in the Northeast where uh, there are a lot of Catholics. So he Eisenhower said to his Attorney General, whose name was Brownell, said, so "Do a little research and find a someone, a judge in the Northeast who's a Catholic. Appeal to the Catholic vote." So Brownell read a speech that Warren uh had given and uh thought it was conservative and uh so it was pretty pretty oh excuse me i'm I'm conflating two ones. In in the case of Warren, uh that goes back to the election of uh nineteen fifty two when Warren was running for president and Eisenhower was running for president. Eisenhower wanted Warren's support so he said uh uh, Warren said, um, "Look, if you, if you, I'll give you my support if you make your first appointment to the Supreme Court to me," and Eisenhower agreed to that. Well, then, Vinson died in September of that of uh, 1953, and uh, uh, so Eisenhower again went to the same Attorney General Brownell. Brownell. Gave him bad advice on a lot of occasions. He said, "Call up Warren and ask him what I promised him. Did I, did I promise him the first associate justice position or the first chief justice position?" And Warren said, "You said the first justice position," and so that's how that's how Warren got on the court. Time for yeah. Let's show, oh, I have a microphone over here. Um, who? Perfect. Let's have this one be the last one because we do have a microphone upstairs and there's plenty of time upstairs to ask Bob some questions. Uh, Dean Stein, uh, many of us were privileged to read the beautiful uh, letters that you crafted to alumni over the years, giving us the the updates on the law school. Who, in your mind, are the greatest writers among the Supreme Court justices over the years? Oh, there's no question. Robert Jackson. It's hands down. There's no one that... Was as eloquent as Jackson. Uh, in fact, even his speeches. He, he, was, as you may know, he sat in the. Uh, uh, he was a prosecutor in the Nuremberg uh, prosecutions after the war, and his opening statement in that case is in books as the great one of the great speeches of the twentieth century. Uh, his uh, his opinions were like poetry, uh, in uh, the Barnett flag salute case. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful opinion. So he was by far the best writer. Uh, opinions to me are like fingerprints. You, when you read them, you can kind of like Harry Blackman uh, had a technique that was kind of funny. He'd he to recite history at the beginning of his opinion. So he had one of his cases was Kurt Flood, a baseball player that challenged the, the uh, rule that uh, let baseball owners control the future of the players. And uh, so he starts out the opinion for a couple of pages talking about the greatest baseball players ever. There's Mickey Mantle, in there and, <laughs> and 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 similarly in, uh, in in the in the abortion decision, Roe versus Wade, he starts out the opinion talking about the history of abortion going back to the Code of Hammurabi and uh, uh, all the medical opinions. So it's fun to get to know the opinions of the court, but. Clearly, I would put Jackson head and shoulders above every other justice. Okay, that's it for now. We'll see you upstairs.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.